0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Rewild My Bio. I'm your host, Sean Slade, and I am grateful to be here with you as your host and guide through this episode today on all things futuristic farming. So today's episode, you will find a ton, a plethora, if you will, of resources over at rewildmybio.com slash farming And today, my wild and wonderful guests, <laughs> plural, are, well... Let's say guest is uh, Drake Larson from Three Ridges Farm. And I am uh, thrilled to finally have Drake here within, I guess, the first year of having of airing this podcast, having Drake here to dive into the very complex subject of ecological farming and regenerative practices. And then I say guest plural, but I kind of backtracked on that because he's no guest. He is my co-host in all things rewilding and getting back to the land. Dr. Richard Vixenic, naturopathic doctor extraordinaire. So I'm super grateful to have, yeah, again, Richard here to help guide this conversation because today's podcast, to be quite honest, was uh, full of festive cheer in regards to a delicious meal, which I uh, had made for uh, Drake and uh, Richard, which involved the lamb, which we had uh, slaughtered and taken down and apart and harvested from uh, Drake's farm uh, here in the beautiful southwestern Ontario region in uh, Sparta, Ontario, Canada. And uh, that meal consisted of lamb liver with lamb bacon that I had made uh, with a couple different purees, a savory puree of beets and then a a more sweet one with pumpkin on a bed of uh, deliciously caramelized onions and pears. And uh, yeah, that's kind of like the perks of actually coming to the studio here. So if you're listening to this and thinking about, hey, coming on the podcast or reaching out (laughs) there's some incentive right there is that uh yeah the meal was legit but the uh it was more than the meal it was the festive cheer uh drake being american in my mind it was the thursday after american thanksgiving which i always celebrate being from canada's most southern town and uh yeah so there was this delicious meal there was beverages it was kind of full-on uh drake had commented on making this a joe rogan style podcast with cigars and whiskey so i I broke out everything I had anyways, and we had bitters on ice and scotch on ice and cigars. So if you hear bottles opening and things like that, my my apologies. And if it seems like uh, I kind of lost my way as the host, again, I apologize. But I think it added some uh, complex—it was a great podcast. We we did this one for about an hour and 45 minutes or so, I think. So we wanted to, again, stay true to that kind of longer form, and I really do enjoy— podcasts like this and uh yeah that's how i think i could foresee the future uh putting more effort into really in-depth conversations so this one being the first on regenerative farming i hope you enjoy it uh i think i i really do i know you'll enjoy it It's, it's a wonderful conversation i learned a lot about it um civil pasture being one really amazing thing and and I was asking Drake to be kind of contrarian in in this episode about veganism and um, realistically I think there is a narrative on uh, eating less meat which is important and Drake uh, highlights that quite well Uh, but at the same time uh, meat being very much or I guess farming livestock for consumption for human consumption can very much be a part of a, a regenerative and beautiful ecosystem where we're living in harmony with nature and um, yes yeah, so when he was asking him to be contrarian after a couple of beverages was quite funny but he, he did a, a, a very great job and yeah I learned a lot today and um, you know I, I, I'm i just thinking about uh, I guess topics like this and getting in depth I, I'd much rather go in depth with conversations these days because short form uh, like let's say social media Things getting taken out of context right now. I think it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous business to be in. It's a part of the reason why I'm. I think producing less podcasts, going longer forum, allowing uh, a, a, an in-depth conversation to take place. I am a qualitative researcher, I guess, and at the end of the day, I do myself ramble on. So I think it's important to be able to. At least when talking about things that I like to talk about, uh, be able to dissect them fully. So, staying away from social media talk. It's kind of funny as I say this. I'm it's it, so full disclosure for you guys. I'll segue into a little story, a, a random rambling, if you will, about um, today was the last day of my TA position at Western University. So, as a PhD student, part of my gig there is to TA uh, a course one semester. A calendar year, and that's about 140 hours over the course of a semester. So, anyways, I've been busy writing uh, my papers and whatnot, and uh, I was given the opportunity to have 70 hours of pay and 70 hours of my time, obviously, to uh, TA a uh, basically what was contact tracing and uh, just you know making sure that masks, you know, obviously masks are being worn. I'm not worried about not policing in that sense. I never had to do that, but. Um, just yeah just making sure like wipes are there and sanitizations there and just anything needed on the COVID front right kind of ironic obviously coming from me so um, yeah you know it was it was an opportunity I was able to sit there and do my studies and if needed I I was there but um, anyways it it is just interesting that right now um, and I mean and, and to the point where I've Done episodes in the past about uh, me not wearing masks prior to them being mandated and whatnot. I have been wearing a mask, so full disclosure to you guys. I, I wear a mask. It's honestly, it's not the hill for me to die on, and I, I do believe that my research in nature connection and, and how our separation from nature is actually causing more harm than it is good. Um, so again, lockdowns and, and staying away from one another and, and nature, not a good thing. And if you guys listen to this show, I'm sure you share that sentiment. But Anyways, I just realized this is not my hill to die on. And so that's why I'm kind of, you know, just remaining silent in these times. And I think it's such a beautiful time of year to do so. Um, there's a lot going on in the world right now. And just even regards to like coming on to the winter solstice here and uh, just the uh, aligning of planets and things like that, where um, this is kind of never before, or not never say never before, so obviously seen before, but uh, uh, biblical times, if you will, where it's, you know, something with, in the last couple thousand years, we haven't seen things like Jupiter and Saturn align and I'm no astrologist by any means, and I just, I really do think that it's a, an interesting time that we find ourselves in, and I think the idea of going quiet, which is something I'm, I, I don't do very well, so, and I, I mean, that's why I have this podcast, but it's funny, because as I, as I sit here, and just for this episode, I had placed uh, pictures of Obi-Wan Kenobi I had printed them out, and uh, they're pictures of him from a young Obi-Wan to an old Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I just think right now the idea of going silent and leaving a light on for those that uh, are looking for education or whatever it is that you're putting out there, if it's in regards to, like say, an alternative narrative, I think just kind of going quiet yet leaving that light on is a good idea. So I'm going to leave the light on here with high-quality episodes where we can dissect things in depth and you know gain a deeper understanding uh, more so than that like kind of clickbait stuff that the world is and so again kind of like the joe rogan podcast and i think this episode is great because yeah drake we kind of just set the stage for regenerative agriculture i would love to have sarah in in the future his wife to discuss all things in regards to her soil research um, but yeah we kind of hit it off here in a great way and uh yeah going into hiding a little bit but just wanted you guys to know that everything will always be available over at rewildmybio.com. If you really want to stay connected on kind of more of the what I'm really thinking kind of stuff, that's, you know, sign up for the newsletter. That's there at the website as well. But uh, yeah, going into hiding just a little bit. Obi-Wan Kenobi styles. It's actually funny, just before hitting record, I read an article all about aliens and Donald Trump's connection to them and just seen a lot of alien stuff lately right with the the whole monolith that's being discovered it dropped in different uh you know natural parks uh natural nature parks and you know natural reserves and things like that and copycats showing up and just this fascination with aliens right now right and again no astrologist by any means or astrologer but uh there's <laughs> right but uh it's just interesting that there's all these things happening right now and i'm even referencing star wars right but Obviously, I'm referencing Star Wars because it's me. But anyways, uh, nothing much more to say. This was a long episode, so let's dive right into it. That was plenty uh, enough for this random la- rambling. Um, I do apologize if Richard's microphone sounded off. We had technical difficulties, which I believe I fixed at some point. So, again, everything can be found over at rewildmybio.com slash farming And please check out uh, all things Three Ridges Farm. You can actually find them on the web at threeridges.com. Dot farm, And if you are interested in some of the most delicious uh, and, again, beyond sustainably sourced uh, meat, such as uh, poultry right now, you can get a hold of them at eat at threeridges.farm. So, yeah, please stick around to the end of the episode. Drake fills you in on more ways to find them and all the good stuff in regards to their farm. So enjoy the episode. Welcome to Rewild My Bio, a self-help and alternative health podcast. I'm your host, Sean Slade. Join me as I share stories, science, and strategies to help you rewild your biology and redefine your
1: biography. Man, I don't know when the last time mm-hmm. been in here, fuck, like June, July maybe, mm-hmm. July.
0: Yeah, well, we hit a bunch in the beginning of the year, and then uh, the Cove.
1: The Cove? The Cove. Well, we did a bunch during Cove, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. It was more, summer came, I was like, let's get outside. Yep. Yeah,
0: yeah, it was good. yeah well, that was. No that's time. just it. And then I legitimately <laughs> took the month of August off to do a whole slew of like land things and just, you know, and yeah, I've always taken August off if I had to think like uh, going back to a personal trainer days, August, everyone just never would come for workouts. And so you just automatically took it off. And then, yeah. And then as an academic, it's like, there's no, there's no, no professor that's there doing anything in August. So.
2: It's our worst sales month on the farm. Is it? eh? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was for the longest time. It was be the slowest month of the year for us too last two, three years, that hasn't been the case. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That is interesting. Yeah.
0: Well, that's good. Yeah, yeah I don't think that, that's, that's, I but guess. August
1: that, is yeah. everyone's on vacation. That's weird, though, for the farm to be slow.
2: Just the sales, yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I think around. people are on vacation yeah. and doing their thing. They're buying
1: fucking hot dogs true. from Kmart. That's
2: true. Ha- yeah,
0: unless I had like a CSA, I'm, I'm kind of all over the map as to what I'd be doing in August anyways, right? Just given that I'm off. So, yeah, interesting. Well, I think uh, maybe we already officially started. Because I kind of got into the zone there. So we'll say, uh, awesome. welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Uh, let me just say, I'm excited to, if we, uh, if I didn't include that already, which I think I will, is just saying we've got Richard Vixenic back again on the mic. So welcome to the show. Hey, man. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. So Good to be back. Yeah. Welcome. And Drake Larson, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. It's, uh, well, it's a special show, I think, because it's, uh, well, it's a, exactly one week after American Thanksgiving drake you being american we'll probably get to that at some point today but uh i'm thinking that we are kind of just celebrating here the holidays to be together um it's been a it's been a great it's been a it's been an interesting year but it's also been a great year because i've forged new friendships uh this year with both richard and yourself drake so um so it's just a long time coming to have you sitting here on the mic so yeah a double welcome to you Yeah,
1: it's good to have you here drake Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah well i know yeah i know you're excited too because uh the topic at hand, I think, well, what we're going to get into is, and even starting like this is a good good way to maybe do this, is saying, how awesome was Halloween, uh, the Halloween festivities?
1: That was uh, right. probably one of the best non-trick-or-treat Halloweens yeah. I've had in, uh, ever. Yeah, right. Probably, yeah.
0: And for the kids, too. And uh, just to have uh, everyone out, family styles, and enjoying some lamb meat. So I guess to fill you guys in, this past uh, Halloween was a full moon. It was... Um, close to a, a lamb slaughter that you had taken down a few lambs on the property on your land as we'll get to but uh it was nostalgic for me because cause to be able to enjoy a full lamb roast there on the farm and then just uh i don't know everything that's been going on this year it was there's been few highlights of the year where you can actually be together with people and you know to be outdoors and to be doing everything properly and whatnot it was just really nice to be able to uh to get together so yeah how awesome was that lamb
1: uh, well, I'll, <laughs> I think I'll just kind of drop this here. Mm. I've come from a mm. a lineage of lamb eaters, kind of being from a specific region of Eastern Europe. And uh, I wouldn't say I'm a lamb connoisseur, but Yum I've eaten door. a lot of lamb in my day. And I, I don't say this lightly, but I'm pretty sure this is the best lamb I've ever eaten. Right. Yeah, pretty much. Like it was just texture, obviously flavor. But um, mm, right. just the even just the energy coming off that lamb when you are holding it in your hand, right? The, the the meat was uh, was something else.
0: So, Drake, how did you do that? <laughs> <Let's start.
2: laughs> That's what the whole no. podcast is uh, about. Go.
0: No, that was that was just. a, I mean, well, yeah. Let's chat about it a little bit. Yeah. No. Uh, What do you? What do you? What do you? How about? How would you like to comment on that? Because yeah, yeah. You well, were you were the founder of the feast, so
2: certainly that was a beautiful night. I mean, I think a lot of stars aligned. uh, Beautiful weather. It wouldn't have been the same night if we had the weather that we had on the the next day, right? Like it was yeah, snowing right. and blowing. And, and, uh, so everything was just, just perfect that night. Um, yeah, I mean, we roasted a lamb over wood that was harvested on the same farm, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so all those pieces were coming together and some able to be thankful for new friendships. And, you know, that's the first time we had sort of hung out that right. day and processing your animal. And so, yeah, it was, it was, that was a great, uh, that was a great day. Um, the lamb i yeah. Tell us about Which, the
0: lamb. What, like what's uh, what breed of lamb are you guys raising this year and tell us about your herd and just that whole process. Cause yeah, that was the first year. Let's, let's even just start with that.
2: Yeah. So this is our first year raising lamb. And so I, I can't take a lot of credit. I don't think for, <laughs> for what they are. Um, yeah. I mean, to sort of build the story around the taste there that you started, Richard, I mean, I think our farm is a very diverse farm and tries to mimic a lot of nature and as much as possible. And so we call our, uh, farm three ridges, ecological farm. And we you know, felt it was important to put that word ecological in there just to sort of, uh, connotate that we're sort of trying to tap into these, these patterns and process that, you know, nature can reveal for us. And so, um, you know, that lamb, the, the sort of life that he lived, I think, and one of the reasons that he was so tasty was he just sort of lived his uh, biological expectations. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, um, you know, you can you can learn a lot about how to raise an animal by watching right. the animals, and uh, we can get into more sort of the processes of rotation and things on the farm, which are yeah, all of that plays into it—a varied diet. But I really think you know you can lean on that idea of trying to fulfill an animal's biological expectations um, as mm-hmm. a good sort of backbone for management. Um, it's a real simple then-
1: sort of way to encapsulate it. Is to say, yeah, just like let it do its thing biologically just set up the space and, and kind of maybe coordinate here, coordinate there, but just kind of give it flow and let it go.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's so many pieces that come together after that, you're, you know, with that in mind, um, everything from long nursing cycles, you know, like that lamb drank a lot of milk. In it's early part of its life a lot, you know, more so than your sort of Costco, New Zealand lamb, for instance, you know, which for is sure. weaned very early, um, a diversity of diet, uh, one thing I think plays a big part of it is um, like levels of stress. So that lamb probably ex- uh, experienced some acute stress, but no com- no um, chronic stress, mm. which is in in uh, you know a lot of industrial animal agriculture. We really focus on reducing the acute stress, but then they have these chronic stressors that are right. there. So you know Richard knows sort of how to the differences those play, right? Like well, add yeah. to the
0: cum- add to that the cumulative burden on the biology of those lambs from being castrated, not having testicles most times, right? Whereas this this lamb had died with his testicles, right? So that obviously having a big, you know, impact on its biology and how it's growing and growth hormone and whatnot. So well, how
1: can you live your biology without those?
0: <laughs> well, I, I, I wouldn't so, be able to comment. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, there is so many things. And I think you're right to say like, yeah, living its biology, what what was the term you used? Biological biological expectations expectations, right? So, um,
2: expects to be sort of
0: living its living to living its life to its fullest, right? So, and I mean, I, we're starting this podcast in a different way than I've started any podcast, and normally getting your your story and your biography into you know how you got into ecological farming and how you got into ecological farming or regenerative farming. I'm sure we'll touch on you know definitions of things like that. But yeah, what, is, what exactly led you to this path? You, you're saying we, uh, when you talk about the farm, so obviously meaning you and your, your wife, Sarah. So yeah, tell, tell, tell us your story that led you uh, here to Ontario, already commenting on you being uh, from the United States. So yeah, tell, tell folks, how did you get into uh, farming? What brought you back to the land?
2: Yeah, great. So our place, Three Ridges Ecological Farm, is just uh, near Sparta, Ontario. And uh, we've been here since 2015. And it's my uh, wife and I and my young daughter, Nira, and she's, uh, she came to the farm when she was 10 months. And I think, you know, she was probably the driving impetus that brought us here to Canada. We, uh, my wife and I've been going sort of in in this, towards this path, pushing towards uh, regenerative agriculture, so to speak, uh, for a while. And then when it was sort of like looking at where we actually are going to put those root da- roots down, I was doing, I, I'm born and raised in Iowa. And so he was uh, doing some farming with a friend there in Iowa. And but when the, when my daughter was born, sort of mama bears instinct kicks in and was like, you know, let's, we got to make sure we're, she didn't say we have to move to Canada, but she said like, when we're making right. our short list, we're thinking about Canada with, you know, uh, honestly. And then, yeah, and then, so we came here and yeah, um, there's a lot of, a lot of benefits.
0: Well, getting time off as a, as a mom and knowing how close to the whole parenting and education process you guys are with nira it just makes sense to be able to go somewhere where it's like yes we can we actually i guess as a country value you know time off with your children when they're born right so
2: yeah and we already had her before and she was in in the university system sarah so she did have good you know maternity leave but yeah that certainly that speaks to sort of for sure levels of care and awareness for sure um i mean with the healthcare in mind since you sort of brought it up Mm -hmm. that's a huge part um for a young entrepreneur, like, um, uh, medical burdens and medical right. in- insurance costs can be a big thing. Like, so, you know, we're not, we, we've, yeah. we've got our farm, but it's not lucrative, so to speak yet. We're dependent on outside incomes still with my wife's work, mm-hmm. um, here, but so it can cost a lot to secure health insurance in the States and can, right. can, can, it's make it's it really th- hard to, to leave your cubicle job to go to on the farm fo- to work right. full time. So that's
0: the thing I've never, as a, someone who identifies as, you know, entrepreneurial. Yeah. I've never actually thought about that. The, that extra burden that you'd have right yeah sure. and you
2: you know you can tease apart interesting pros and cons of both systems sure. under that but just the simple fact that
0: you know it's uh
2: it's available to me
0: right yes it's pretty good yeah especially on a farm when there is that uh risk in being you know just working with your hands right so it just
2: we know some farmers sort of tangentially but that uh you know recently yeah uh, in the in the states the guy they didn't have they're not carrying insurance and he had a pretty wicked eye injury and it, you know it's be sort of compromise their whole Right. Their whole operation. Well, you
1: can, you can move up here and live your biological, what would you say? A Biological. <laughs> biological expectations. Expectation yeah. you know, yeah.
2: And I take that, um, that's probably something I borrowed from sort of, uh, n- trying, trying to learn out how the heck you parent a young child in this day and age in a book that sort of influenced our parenting style too, is a continuum, co- continuum concept, um, where a woman went down and lived with indigenous folks and watched how their kids sort of reacted. And it was this idea of, you know, um, fulfilling the kids' biological expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because, yeah, here, we're, here we are talking about farming, but very much tiptoeing around
0: this subject that we're all very fond of is that personal development, right, and, and um, self-actualization or growing, or as the analogy I like to use, the Jungian analogy of, you know, the acorn to the oak tree, right, and, uh, and just working the land and how we are able to, I, I mean, at least from speaking from my own experience, working, having land now and, and working it, I could only and just you know looking and having you told your story as well Richard and Drake getting to know your story as well it just seems that we are able to cultivate a greater awareness of who we are or or what our purpose is through those times where we're shoveling something or shoveling shit or shoveling, you know, you know, we're doing that in the, in literally speaking, but in the same time, mulling over whatever may be, uh, you know, need to be mulling over. And I find that's one of the most important things about nature connection is that time for self-reflection. Right. So with that comes, I think, uh, the ability to grow and be a whole person. So, yeah. So, I mean, I guess kind of maybe you could speak to what it was about coming back to the land that drove you or where was your passion or how did you find this, passion for, you know, personal development in the process.
2: Yeah. Um, I, had, I had a couple thoughts as we were talking there on which way to sort of initially answer that. And you mm-hmm. took it a bit different than I was thinking, but I think it all does tie back together sort of uh, because I think one of those sort well, of, I'm sorry, th- I'm you
0: know, sorry. I'm going to cut you off again or cut you off officially, I guess. There is a, uh, seeing as this is our holiday, special where there's beverages involved. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, tangentially. Uh, yeah, so, so yeah, exactly. So just to let the listener know that if it happens to be a little disjointed, we'll come back to it.
2: No, no, it's great. I'm yeah. just thinking of where to take it. Um, right. So I think, you know, one of the first things in, in that idea of sort of finding yourself on the farm is actually just getting out of your own way, which is, you know, so important for sort of whatever habitat you find yourself in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then that really, I, I, was linking to that back to the animals and respect to sort of our more general, um, the regenerative thrust of our farm is, uh, not only stewarding these animals, but we're sort of engaging these, uh, animals as, as allies in the regenerative process. And then to bring that back to sort of that biological expectation is there's a, you know, sort of a farmer entrepreneur, Joel Salatin author. Mm -hmm. He has a saying, I, I, I think it's about pigs, but it's like the pigness, you know, ex, um, the pigness of a pig or the chickenness of a chicken and letting those animals exhibit their nests. Mm. Um, but then also it dovetails with a, a saying from another mentor of ours, Sepp Holzer, in the permaculture world, where he basically says, you know, like either you have a pig or you do the work of a pig, right? So, so if you could, <laughs> could tee right, t- yeah. t- into this and let that pig exhibit their pigness and then figure out how that pigness dovetails with, uh, your regenerative processes, mm-hmm. um, which often in order to see those things means taking yourself out of the picture and getting out of your own way and then thinking, you know, instead of when a pig digs up an area and the next, then you're just mad at the pig, which I've been, you know, <laughs> mad at pigs, but there's like, there's not many other more futile. Now I got to fences <laughs> yeah. for the pigs that the
1: pigs are going to wreck and they're yeah. going to be more pissed off. Or they're so. not
2: doing what I want yeah. them to, right? But it's like, okay, that's not the right, that's not the right view this is what a pig does. And how can I direct the pig? How can I direct the pigness of the pig or the, the, the lambness of the lamb. Right. um, In sort of these greater endeavors, which I think comes back to Richard's point too, is why is the lamb or question? Why is the lamb so good? Is I think, you know, we have this diverse, the system that they're moving through and we can continue to flesh out here, but um, there is some intentionality to sort of what we're doing there. Mm And I'm Right increasingly convinced I would have before my farming days probably called it sort of woo woo to think about how intentions can change outcomes and help to sort of manifest certain conclusions versus others. And, you know, maybe there's a point in a process where things could really go, you know, one way or the other and how much sort of these energies can nudge you towards the more positive outcome. And so, um, you know, I do think that there's something going on with the sheep and the animals in our farm, um, cause they're all delicious by the way. And I'm not like sort of tooting my own horn, but like <laughs> yeah, we have definitely. customers constantly telling us, you know, like I've eaten chicken my whole life and yeah. then this is the best chicken I've ever had. Um, tastes like chicken. Like people say it tastes like
0: chicken, but like chicken does have a taste and it, they, there's a noticeable difference without a doubt. It tastes like chicken's supposed to. And there's so much flavor there. It's not just, I don't mean that like it tastes like chicken, like it's blah, but it tastes like chicken.
2: <laughs> yeah. And we do a lot of things to, to select for that, you know, with chickens, mm-hmm. I've got a lot of work to source their diet, you know, and I don't buy expensive, high quality, you know, sort of uh, um, deluxe food mix. Anyhow, the word escaping there is going to use sort of really catered to our, to our system. So those things really fall into place, but then I think there is a sort of intentionality, right? And I mean, all that thought on food choice and diversity sort of plays into the attention and makes it real to the universe, so to speak.
1: But, well, just considering, uh this is kind of like a pioneer approach or maybe that's not the right word to use, but sort of a new edge of farming. And uh, it involves certain um, things that you're not sure about, uh, experimental learning. So you have to have something that is driving that, like a passion and an intention and a, a vision. And like, I know, you know, the reason I ended up back to the land is you know as a naturopath always chasing root cause root cause root cause mm. so you know root cause is this and then you can boil it down to oh well it's if you're if you're stressed or if you boil it down to you're not eating well and if you're not eating well you're not you know are you eating good food but what does good food mean oh good food means this organic oh no it can mean this now and you're chasing root cause so you're, mm. you know as a naturopath you're kind of going into all of these things and it all comes back down to soil mm-hmm. basically like the root health right, yeah. of this earth of every animal including us that walks upon the earth is dependent of course on sun and water and but soil is this real like point of settling where mm-hmm. you, we can make a lot of uh positive changes for all living beings on earth for the environment itself Etc. and the cultures that you know come through those landscapes and so those like that's you have to hold that to kind of try and birth something that's really against the grain really when, when you think about it against the grain literally in terms of uh-huh. you know corn and soy and big ag and all those things and some of those so you're coming in with a different vision so intentionality yeah makes a big difference I mean, how would you manifest it otherwise
2: yeah. Well, I mean, I almost get now just thinking this deeply about soil and just like I almost am you know, sort of in that context can feel sort of a little bit of emotion bubbling up even. Right. Because, mm. um, I mean, I can think about soil in so many ways and a, a lot of my sort of driving, driving factors to becoming a, a regenerative farmer, so to speak, was sort of, um, growing out of advocacy for soil health, mm. um, And in Iowa, there's lots of soil abuse because the soils are so rich. We find we can abuse them quite a lot, and so um, have a lot of used to be well into photography of erosion and these sort of like. uh, uh, So it 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 means a lot to me there. My wife's a soil ecologist, and so I can talk about the soil from you know sort of strictly scientific mind to be breaking them down mm. into, you know, uh, Latin terms and the, uh, my CDs and the different, uh, the different things, but then also it does it sort of soil kind of, I think also you can veer in to start talking almost of sort of magic, right? It's the gateway mm-hmm. between sort of uh, life and death on earth. Right. And everything is cycling through it. So not only is it like the foundation of our support systems, but it's, uh, it really is. There's like what do you think about this uh forests that are talking communicating across hundreds of miles through soil and mama uh, earth's gut basically yeah it's 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 so amazing and and you bring in you know the way this the water is moving through that right and you've got sort of the blood and the flesh of the of the earth and so yeah um
1: well let's kind of let's try and uh, let's talk about regenerative agriculture as a as a sort of a concept maybe this might be new to some listener like what does that even mean how that ties into soil as a basic thing i
0: I was gonna say yeah in in that front with regenerative agriculture i guess yeah to define it though is that there is always that idea yeah it's about the air the soil the water and just working sustainably and and beyond sustainably and, and regenerating soil and and good quality air and good quality water but it there is that underlying piece that we're talking about where it's there's more to that which is food so i mean that was a great kind of segue into this whole regenerative piece because yeah, there's the actual benefit of taking in the food. Um, but there is more to that. And I think there's, there's a, there's a nature connection piece where there's a spiritual aspect, but at the same time there's this microbial diversity that I think we're kind of just, just beginning to touch on here. So yeah, what, what exactly is it regenerative farming and ecological farming even? And how, how are they yeah. different? Or?
2: It's maybe best to start that question with sort of why would we need it? Right. And so we've, yeah. um, can sort of look at the historical per- perspective of agriculture. And we know that a lot of sort of cultures that have shifted towards the cultivation of and domestication of plants and animals have en- eventually sort of met a uh, terrible ends, right? The fertile crescent was called the fertile crescent for a good reason. And now it's a desert, mm-hmm. um, you know, and sort of the, um, yeah, like the pyramids weren't built in a desert, right? They were built in an oasis. And then over time agriculture and landscape change and sort of, you know, continental wide deforestation and, um, has turned these places into a desert. And so, uh, earth right now is sort of under a an intense period of desertification and we're seeing sort of these water regimes shift over time, uh, largely in my opinion, driven by sort of land degradation. And so I think, you know, somewhere like 80% of all the world's arable soils, which are going to be the word they use for sort of, you know, tillable, you can plant a crop in it or a really beautiful pasture um, 80% are, are degraded. And I think the large proportion of that is like sort of on the, on the gradients in the severely degraded, uh, side of things. And so, um, you know, you can't really plot linear relationships on top of these living systems, but if you were to, as sort of a, uh, alarm bell, you could look at a lot of the sort of rates of erosion and stuff and say that, you know, in my daughter's lifetime, we're likely to sort of have real huge problems with, uh, crop failures or food shortages in north america due to um erosive issues you know and that's that's um plays out differently in different places um but there's a lot of soil that's being moved and lost in iowa um and similarly in ontario we have a thing sort of the the tolerable soil loss rate so this started to get to push the story to why we need um regenerative agriculture and uh, and i would say we need regenerative agriculture because we've we missed the boat on conservation agriculture. That was sort of the, the century before us from the dust bowl. There was really a call for, which is in the 1930s, 20s, 30s, building up a real call for conservation agriculture. We did a lot of things. We did a lot of things to make us feel good about the little bits of things we were doing and we ultimately didn't do enough. And so we've had this, we have this real crunch where, um, you know, 60, 70 years down the road, There might be real problems and we don't know where those problems manifest. Maybe the last 10% takes longer to erode and we get 120 years or maybe just, you know, everything goes to shit when you get to 15%. So we don't know where these processes are, but we do know that the trend is towards um, the degradation of soil. And then we bring it back and then like the soil is the, you know, the underpinning of our, of our um, civilization, certainly you know, and our species and not to mention the sort of productivity of earth, um, largely. And so now we're in this point, um, you know, we had the sort of conservation was a big thing. That's where I got into sort of, uh, both wildlands conservation and wild wildlife conservation was sort of my, you know, thrust coming out of high school. And, um, you know, first wanted to be a game warden wardens, so like chase people that were, <laughs> were, uh, you know, damaging our natural resources. And um, and then sort of wanted to, you know, learn more about the science and sort of brought me into science, but still this like conservation thrust and how to like better serve our, you know, population modeling efforts with respect to sort of hunting limits or those sort of conservation measures. But then, um, so in agriculture, we had this opportunity for conservation, but we just continued to lose incredible amounts of soil. So brings me back, so in, in Iowa, for instance, and it's very similar here, um, there's this thing we have called the tolerable soil loss limit. And it it is like a, it's a underpin some funding. Like you can't sort of get certain funding streams and maybe some taxes are associated with it. You have to do, you have to meet this minimum, but it's five tons, five tons per acre per year loss in Ontario. It's like oh. it's six tons per acre per year loss. Um, hmm. And so they allow the tolerable, like that, We're not even starting to get cranky about it yet. The tolerable loss limit being five to six tons per acre, that's sort of breaking down to sort of like 40 to 60 years of regeneration in um, that we're willing to lose. And for, to tell you, it doesn't take long to really add up. Five uh, five tons is about the the width of a dime mm-hmm. um, moving off the soil. And right. it, it's a really hard thing to sort of pin down because mm-hmm. we've got there's soil is uh, is a fluid substance, and so it's always moving and shifting on the land as well. So, some of these things are really hard to pin down. And actually, some of the models and the simplifications of even things like this tolerable soil loss limit, which is comes from a equation used in in uh, both Canada and the U.S. of the universal soil loss equation. But even that is sort of, um, it's probably you know three soil scientists sitting around like us with a few beers and they came up with this equation. Now we sort of hung every policy in agriculture on it ever since. And it's rife with assumptions and probably not that useful. And
1: so we've missed, so we had this opportunity for conservation agriculture and we had, you know, there's still there's the language around sustainable agriculture, sustainable uh, businesses. And uh, yeah, unfortunately we're past sustainable. Like sustainable is that's treading water, right? We're sustaining something.
2: Yeah, exactly. Right? And we need a lifeboat
1: now. And that's basically something like, well, regenerative agriculture can answer, has uh, positions itself to answer a lot of our, um, you know, things that we're facing that are perilous. Right. And, right. um, yeah, I think Well, it's-
0: I think you just painted a great picture at the need for regenerative practices because I think sustainability... I remember some time ago when mm-hmm. I started to get into permaculture five plus years ago, yeah, the term sustainability was like old news. Let's, you know, stop using that. And now, then it was regenerative, right? And uh, I mean, there's so many different ways about this. And I think there's a mainstream narrative around what is regenerative or what to eat that is sustainable. Um, but I think when it comes down to actually seeing how a farm operates like you guys do and then tasting how good it is and talking about all this, this amazing stuff it's like this to me it's like this is the way this is the this is the farm of the future right so and i think that's actually what we're going to uh do here for this podcast it's re- if all the show notes and any type of resources because i know drake you've thrown a ton of resources out there already we'll make sure everything's linked at uh, rewildmybio.com slash future of farming because that's what this stuff is to me it's the future of farming so um
2: yeah, and that's not to What's take called? away any from anybody that sort of built their banner on the sustainable agriculture, right? Like I I come from a okay. – I got a yeah. sustainable agriculture master's degree at Iowa State University. And, um, you know, that those the folks that were sort of really had to fight against the waters to get that program developed right. in, a, in a pretty harsh ag college atmosphere. I mean, like, right, they were just sure. uh, sort of, yeah, using the sort of – latching onto that word and helping to become – make it a buzzword and sort right. of uh, – you know, there's been a lot of farmers of that generation that that had those ambitions. And so that's certainly mm-hmm. not take away from them. And, but only then it does in the sense of our, the way sort of, especially it seems to be ramping up so much these days of sort of the co-option, right? Then like pretty soon it's like Monsanto or like, I think one of them for a while, DuPont, was like the sustainable ag corporation or whatever, right? So you not only get co-opted, but then it sort of gets watered down, right? And so we're just, we're always trying to keep new terms to sort of keep yeah, us on exactly. the tip, right? Yeah. As I'm reminded always when I have this conversation of like the uh, Taoist philosopher chuan Su and he says sort of I'd, I'd love to man who love to meet a man who's forgotten words so that we can have a conversation mm. right well, tell
1: talking about words and English language in particular on this show a lot and how we do right limiting yeah. it is yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. well
0: tell you, you you touched on it and I do want to so it was interesting for me to hear because again just getting to know you your life as a researcher and uh, your, your, your I guess, motivation to be a game warder, I think, find that pretty cool. But uh, tell folks, yeah, tell me about your research and uh, just kind of that whole time of your life, I guess, before we dive into more regenerative agriculture stuff. But yeah, what was your research in regards to and how did that get you outdoors, I guess, more and
2: yeah, sure. Um so I always started outdoors. I'd like to, I think mm-hmm. sort of I always started with a bit of a naturalist lens. My dad was a hunter, mm-hmm. and so we were always outside hunting. He was to some extent a self-taught hunter, so it's not a long family tradition, but uh but we were always out there and uh they made my my folks and uh stepmom and such made a high priority to get us on property that was next to some wildlands. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a huge part of my development. So when so I was in kindergarten, area. we yeah. moved out of the sort of inner city sort of layout some um not deep inner city but yeah but from you know city setting to uh to a- area where we had access to to right. nature and you and just so- went nuts
0: you just get out in nature as a kid right And then you're yeah just- we
2: had a few acres but then teed up to some some conservation land associated with a reservoir near us and so we it was like the world was our oyster you could go as far as you wanted to really um following the lake edge and this is an Iowa
0: this is an Iowa in Iowa right in central
2: yeah. Iowa yep where most of the land is privately owned and so it's like to be okay. but to be butt up next to i think it's 95 or 92% privately owned so did like tee up next it to is. this uh, army corps of engineer uh, reservoir land was you know quite quite special and really wow. nice i mean there's some beautiful wild landscape to be, to be next to in Iowa for sure mm-hmm. but uh so we, you know started with that sort of naturalist perspective um, and then you know i suppose the conservation I had lots of interactions with conservation officers as a hunter and, and uh, I mean, all positive ones, Um, but they were mentors of mine as well. Like, and we sort of live next to a state park and a reservoir. And so like the office was there and we were friends with our conservation officers. So they were positive role models. The the few folks I knew there and um, a nice opportunity for a life that sort of uh, is being outdoors and following these things around. I didn't, uh, I didn't end up pursuing that very far. I went to, university with that in mind, um, and promptly dropped out, uh, for various reasons, um, <laughs> uh, which I think are actually, I would recommend to anybody to not go to university <laughs> when you're 18. It's so much right. easier when you come back when you're like 25. True. But, um, and then I found yeah. my way to work on the land through, uh, being a hunting outfitter right in, yeah. in Iowa. And so I spent I don't know, probably 10 years doing that and some associated, uh, businesses related to that. Was um, that your
0: first entrepreneurial kind of endeavor then at that point or
2: um it was certainly like my first incorporation with really m- money on the line i was right out of high school but i oh, yeah. you know I, I had like a little farm market pumpkin stand all my life growing up and then okay, sort sure. of in my later teens my folks had a hardware store and i had sort of little businesses associated with that okay yeah, yeah. Really. certainly yeah. worked in there you right. know it's a family business so no we always had cool. an entrepreneurial thread i see um i've worked for a few people in my life and I've never really liked, <laughs> liked it. Oh, you too. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, some of them have brought great opportunities. Um, mm. but then through the hunting, I was always interested in the science and was really like a citizen science and, and more like I'm using science through advocacy, mm-hmm. which is actually something that I think is, has been desperately missing from sort of institutions of science or we, we haven't separated science from the scientists from their work and they often feel Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't advocate. They haven't advocated over the last hundred years, uh, as much as they sort of could to help be these messengers. Mm-hmm. So I, I really always had an interest in that, which I found is sort of like, being this mm-hmm. advocate um, of science and of conservation through yeah. science yeah, yeah. means. You know, part of that was there's an organization we were always part of, uh, growing up, which was Ducks Unlimited, and Ducks right. Unlimited has a very uh, forward. Um, Foundation of science-based decision making, and even in duck hunting, which was my specialty, and I was a, a goose hunting guide. But in North America, the the North American wildlife management model of adaptive management—it's this um, sort of really interesting matrix that brings together a few surveys. Uh, continental wide surveys of Canada and the U S. And it's like this very scientific format of when seasons will be this or when it triggers different scenarios or sort of three scenarios off that. So that was really where I started to access good science it was through oh, the yeah. North American cool. wildlife or uh, waterfowl science. And then actually I was drawn back into that through actually hunting. I shot sort of a, uh, um, a banded snow goose that had a, a band from this camp in, in uh, Churchill, Manitoba. And mm-hmm. then so, through just asking more information about that goose with the researchers um i became part of that that research group with the hudson bay project and uh so i was goose hunting and running my businesses um during the hunting season and then my summer was sort of picking up other work and and uh and that sort of thing but it's like oh so i can now i can hunt and then i can go research and so it really was
0: that 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 goose that you shot with the band that kind of changed things and i guess a bit because it brought you to manitoba and that's where you met and that's where, where i met sarah right, yeah your wife right yeah right
2: so i just i love that piece of the story so and, and it was that, yeah, that goose in great. itself when you make me think about how much it was <laughs> really critical in it it's it the story's even a little bit funnier because uh or even like a little bit deeper so i won't go into the whole thing but i was in nebraska and we met these really fun younger kids that were super dirt poor and it's like you know i uh hunted with it like just sort of like let them tag along with us for a few days and, you know every day we'd go into like the grocery store and i'd be like buy whatever you want and we'll buy it for you you know it's like and one of the 12 year every every day he like you know wanted me to buy him a bottle of aspirin that's how sort of desperate they were right like really on the sticks but mm-hmm. they had all these pawns and stuff so we'd hunt we'd just let them hunt with us and then and then uh which is funny right because they're like got kids from the sticks and they're hunting with these high roller clients and such but then every afternoon they wanted us to go and do their thing And there was these three geese that were wounded on a pond and they had been chasing them all season um, and couldn't get them. And then I tried to hunt, tried to chase them like two or three times with them, like they wanted to get them. So then then those two or three times that I saw sort of what was going down and heard their stories, Mm -hmm. I was sort of really keyed into Mm. hunting geese and their behavior that day. So then finally the third time when I was exposed to that scenario, I killed all three of them and then yeah that was one of them and that was one of them and actually now that i'm thinking about it that story got worse (laughs) because i had a client i didn't have my dog out i had a client who sent his dog to retrieve the birds they took he took the birds back to his truck before i sort of walked back around the pond because they'd blown they drifted across i shot them over the water and he tried to take that band for me Mm. He, he actually tried to not let me know that it happened but i like, got, a, got back over there, and my, you know, bullshit detector was on full, <laughs>
0: full my regard. Right? Yeah. yeah, right? Wow.
2: And not that I wanted them for the trophy value, but I want, you know, well, I, a- that story, that story ended up, who knew, sort of every one of those steps, because I'm like, I don't want to chase those three birds, you know? It's, there's no, it wasn't glorious for me or whatever, um, but it, there were a, sort of some, to even get that in my hand, and then, yeah. And then my second year up there, then Sarah came up there, and I ended up working in that uh, camp for... Uh, with Hudson Bay Project and the principal mm-hmm. investigator, uh, Robert Rockwell, um, for seven years. I was up there out of Churchill. You were in there. Right? Yeah. Okay. And then, yeah, you
0: guys had some, you guys had the big city, the life in Toronto and doing the research things. Because we'll, we'll probably, we'll have Sarah on in a future episode and we'll do all things in regards to her research and everything.
2: Yeah, and absolutely. stuff for
0: sure. But yeah, so you guys had city life, but here you are now, you know, we'll call it the London, Ontario, Southwest, Ontario, beautiful Carolinian forest um, farm and, uh, yeah, talking about like local biome. And, uh, I think I want to kind of get yeah. into that, like just this, uh, bioregional kind of diversity that we have and how you guys let that do what it's supposed to do to create delicious, again, delicious lamb. There's the thread throughout this it all comes to, back. Yeah. To delicious well, so lamb.
2: let's pick up that sort of yeah missed boat at conservation and moving us towards regeneration. Right. And so, yeah, sure. yeah. so we get to this idea that we have to regenerate the land. And so that's, uh, this bill building soil starting and it come, people come at it from every direction, right? The sequestration of carbon with respect to climate change mitigation, um, bringing nutrients back to our food. Um, and then this idea that I f- sort of floated earlier is like how, uh, you know, if we want to rebuild, so if we want to build soils, how, how has nature done it? What are the patterns and processes that nature's brought on? And so that's really, Um, I, that's sort of what we're trying to, what I think the regenerative aspect is really going back to is sort of relinking to these earthly processes and, um,
1: and so that like on the rewilding thread, we mm talked about rewilding being on a spectrum on the show, not so much like a, just a complete abandonment of, and, and sort of the Luddite thing, but this is I don't this know. A this, bit year, of a, this
0: year I've been wanting to abandon a yeah, lot of I, things, I, man. I, I know.
1: Sorry. But, I? <laughs> um, it's but it's about going back, you know, how are we rewilding the land and mimicking those, those um, pieces of nature that move through the land. So, you know, in re- regenerative agriculture, there's the whole sort of concept of, you know, making sure there's diversity, right? So plant mm-hmm. diversity and animal diversity. So can we talk, cause we love your lamb. Mm-hmm. So we talk a little bit about um, animals in the landscape, uh, how that helps propel soil growth, right? Because we have we all have this notion in our we have this notion in our head of or these pictures in our brain of cow farmers in the Amazon ruining Earth, mm-hmm. right? And so cow farming is bad. Eating meat is bad because Amazon's burning down. So how does this maybe? throw a different lens on that in terms of how important animal husbandry or uh, bringing animals back to the landscape actually is in the process of increasing biodiversity of plants and building soil.
2: Yeah so Sean mentioned just before that the uh, concept of biome right and so the biome is really sets the context for the agriculture and when I think of biome you're sort of the, the sum of all the kind of Biotic and abiotic factors that are coming together to make a place, you know, your rainwater regime, your, you know, latitude, um, is going to sort of dictate, you know, your different day lengths and how, how wide that day length arc is different, uh, across the seasons. Um, water regime, you know, largely his like continental effects, but then also we have sort of more immediate effects here with Lake Erie. And so you take all these things, what, this is the biome? that's kind of what all the systems are throwing out of place. And then what kind of natural system emerges from that place. And as you mentioned, you know, right here, we're in the heart of the Carolinian uh, forest biome, which on a broad scale can reach from, can be considered to reach like from Georgia to the boreal forest. um, Right. And there's going to be differences in there because obviously we're very different than Georgia. So, um, So you have this biome and that sort of sets your context um, for what happens there. And so – or for what – sets your context for the potential that can happen there. Um, And then so if we think of sort of the more um, industrial agriculture model, what that ends up doing is trying to just um, essentially – obliterate the biome and put together a system put down a system that with a few sort of exceptions and tweaks is the same everywhere right like they're farming soybeans the same here as they farm them in brazil it's like mcdonald's kind of
0: like you know just the same everywhere just china China to where the burger tastes the same
2: yeah i mean like it's a cookie cutter right right. for sure and so like and if your ground's too wet then you tile it doesn't sound natural you you drain it out (laughs) exactly and uh you know and then um you see, they're, you know, taking out fence lines because you want bigger tractors and sort of all these forces that are just really trying to like sort of cookie cutter and then, um, you know, fill in any sort of missing gaps with chemical or machine inputs. And so then you have to sort of start to take it into Rich's question. Um, sort of, I'm reminded of there's a, uh, Iowa, Wisconsin, uh, poet philosopher, Aldo Leopold, and he talks about sort of keeping every cog, like looking at a system and keeping every cog. And I I think the analogy is like taking apart a watch, right? Like if you take apart your watch, you gotta, you can't put it back together without a cog, right? And so, so with that, we can look at sort of the biome and where we are and what has been here before um, under these sort of conditions. And then how can we take and, and build an agricultural ecosystem that sort of fits within like those available niche spaces, but then also, uh, you know, we, we want to nudge these towards sort of high productivity in some ways, or at least sort of an optimal mm-hmm. productivity, um, which is really the exciting part because I, there's so little opportunities for productivity in the conventional system because it's all the same, right? Like there's so many roots at one level, they're competing for nutrients and there's nutrients that are left or below and above those, roots for whatever given plant and there's no, uh, spatial diversity. Um, whereas we can build a system that more mimics sort of a succession towards forest, which is what I would say Our our um, my farm systems, um, leans heavily on the concept of silvopasture and and increasingly trying to bring trees and pasture systems together. But then, so we have this diversity. And so you can take a, a cornfield will have one layer and I can have, you know, the the grass productivity layer. I can have a shrub productivity layer. I can have a tree productivity layer. Those are all drawing from different points in the soil. So those productivity layers aren't competing with each other in terms of like in a situation of drought or excess water um, or high winds. You know, they they're they're complementing each other at, at every step. Um, and we can sort of start to put all these pieces in to complement to help to complement each, um, each other. The animals are complementing each other. The we're moving just a few cows with our sheep herd and they don't want exactly the same food. And so I actually get sort of more feed value out of a pass through a, a pasture paddock because the cows are eating what they want and the sheep are eating what they want. And then I can even like, you know, come through with chickens right afterwards and they'll eat the insects that neither the cows nor the sheep wanted. And so we can start to access all these different layers of productivity. Um, and those, that's just a lesson from how the, forest builds up right so is that kind of universal then like we we're talking about looking at the biome of different
0: regions and that but i mean across all ecosystems would this civil pasture idea be you know applicable to all all bioregions where this sounds very like again creating diversity and that being beneficial for a whole host of reasons different foods and uh and whatnot is this something that's applicable everywhere is this like or just here to this specific bioregion?
2: I think it's applicable everywhere. So I come from Iowa, and we talk about biomes. Iowa's starting to get a little bit drier. We've got about 10 inches less rain uh, per year than we do here in southwest Ontario, uh, just given that, um, like, 12 hours sort of east of where I, where I grew up. And so that's more of a prairie uh, context over there. But even then, like, sort of the, the dynamics of kind of forest the dynamic would go like a closed canopy, be your forest, more sort of open s- spatial grassland forest mix is called a Savannah. And then you have your sort of open grassland. Um, and so even though I was sort of maybe like more prone to kind of the open grassland biome, uh, kind of in our, in our, like, geological snapshot yeah there's the civil pasture systems work just as well I see. there because we can flirt with that edge now you want to go to sort of brazil or somewhere and there are people in argentina um there they there's a great concept that's a, um it's one of those things i think it's been going for a while and then it's just sort of emerging uh Ernest Gouch couch i think is his name centropic uh, agriculture and yeah they're totally uh mm. they're working with sort of like seven layers. So potentially a ground layer and, you know, that ground layer in some contexts could be your grazing livestock. I think there's always room for some sort of integration, but your ground layer may be uh, annual crop. It may be mushroom production. Um, just sort of starting to, to build upon these, these layers. Anytime you can bring that in just made yeah. me think, you know, even so like our typical cornfield with one layer more could be done to make that a more resilient and productive system. Right. i I saw once in a presentation in Iowa state, We had some uh, uh, students, and I can't remember if it was Japan or Korea, this particular student, they had their cornfields. But since their cornfields aren't grown with uh, chemicals, they had straw bags growing mushrooms in between every corn row. So they're out there all season harvesting mushrooms. Mushrooms are straight shaded by the corn. The the corn, the straw Mm wattles are uh, helping to conserve water for the corn crop. And, uh, you know, so even that, wow. so then you think of that, and then all of a sudden, you know, that there's there's going to be a beetle and a spider that's living sort of in that new niche space, right? And that place is going to catch seeds, and all of a sudden you have this more diversity. So then if you think of sort of my system where I th- consider that there's kind of three layers, like the ground layer, the shrub, and the trees, and then if you get to the centropic egg where they're in the tropics and they're using uh, seven layers of you know, banana trees and all and avocado and all sorts of stuff. mm mm-hmm.
1: So you you're using the word productivity a lot and that's an important consideration when you're a farmer and when there's people on the planet that want to eat. So that's a that's obviously production's a thing. Um, that's going to get some people thinking oh it's all about you know just sort of the anthropocentric thing again like human centric right productivity. Yeah. So but there's the productivity is on all of these layers for the animals and for the microbes in the soil. So it's, it becomes that symbiosis. Right. And so it's like a climate change thing. It's good for a farmer in terms of, Hey, how much uh, density can you get on an acre? You know, how much, Mm -hmm. how much uh, livestock density can you get on an acre, you know, this regenerative way or conventional way. So you're starting to use language that um, is appropriate on, all levels, which is a good thing. Yeah.
2: Well, and that's one or thing. has I've, the potential to be. I've really wrestled yeah. with that. And especially in my sort of uh, academic days, you know, where were, we were folks, there was a concept going around then the sort of novel ecosystem. And like, you know, that was like really key to me. Like, okay, these ecosystems are degraded and we can start to put them back together. But I'm not building a Carolinian forest per se, right? Like we're, it's a novel ecosystem. Um, and then some of the restorationists that was, super offensive right even like my my lab mates and maybe on to me on some days as well um so yeah we're building we're creating sort of these ecosystems and so productivity is going to be part of it um you know and i think a lot of that is we can't be shy about the idea that productivity is going to be part of it um both because you know there's huge population pressures coming and so it's um you know a farm is supposed to feed people. And so that we, we already by saying we're farming versus sort of restoring a place where we're sort of bringing on a bit of responsibility that we're going to be, um, sort of feeding communities, um, which I think is very important too, uh, for, for all sorts of other reasons.
1: Um, I guess my point was, yeah, yeah it can be productive. It's not a bad word in terms of like, right. Because yeah. if we think of the, uh, current, Model based on productivity, right? Like that, that has a lot of connotation to it. It's like, well, that's why we don't care what happens as long as we get our yield.
2: Right. And then, yeah. And so the one place I was going to bring that was sort of to the, uh, so many of the world's ecosystems have been nudged towards productivity by humans for so long and we don't necessarily, um acknowledge that. And so we sort of, the productivity sometimes is cast against this other like softer handed uh, approach, you know, that may sort of lean on, you know, indigenous agricultures, but those, uh, like those have always been highly productive. Right. And we see like our forests here would have been sort of oak and chestnut and uh, chinkapin and depending on, on where you are and pawpaws. Uh, And then now that we've not managed them for productivity because we don't view them as productive now they're all going towards maple beach, which have like these smaller nuts and, and less seed, less mass value. If you ask me, it's all because sort of the previous inhabitants were cultivating these. Right. And even like the Amazon, which, you know, there's long mythology of that being, um, sort of rugged and untouched. And we're, of course we're learning more about that now. Uh, but like I've seen early ecological assessments and then like, so if you take sort of the top seven trees, in the amazon forest in a place that looks untouched it's like you know it's the brazil nut sort of number one and then there's all like all seven of them are these huge really? calorie producers and then you like look at the top seven vines and they're all these like super calorie and medicinal producers and you're thinking like oh if nature's yeah, rolling right. the dice that ain't that ain't the way it happening right, right like right. we're building these productive systems right and uh, i think and and so that in mind we have to we want to build productive systems so um, you know, as a for in a, from foresty aspect, I always want to pick on the maple cause it doesn't have the value of an oak. Right. Um, and that's where a lot of our trees are going is towards the maples cause we've just, the oaks are taken out. They have the higher wood value. We don't value the acorn productivity. And then, so they get cut. The maples aren't as good a of wood often or, um, you know, and I've now moving here and making my own syrup. And of course I don't want to offend any sort of <laughs> <laughs> C- Canadians or e- <laughs> Northeast uh, Amer- yeah. Americans, you know, the taking away from the value of the maple, but like, uh, it's not random how all these systems are so productive. Anyhow, even respect to the, the prairie, prairies, which...
1: Um, so there's intention and stewardship is a, a, of a lens that you can mm-hmm. kind of put on it too. It's like, it's productivity. Yeah, we need to feed people. And if right. you're busting your ass on the on the land, you, you, you wouldn't mind some kickback for that. Of course. And yeah, uh, Always. yeah and, and, but it's also productive for the soil, like all the way down to the soil itself. But all the animals that move through that system... The water that moves through that system, the air that moves through that system is all going to be, you know, potentially cleaner, healthier. So can we attach the label productive to that too, right? So it's on all of those
0: levels. I'd say, well, I, I just, it's just interesting to me that this is, you know, talking about rewilding a lot on the show. And I think it's looking at how these systems provided abundance and fed civilizations for a very long time and you know that's just them being them doing what they're supposed to do and we're just kind of tending to them as they're being wild so it's that rewilding where i i would like to think now regenerative farms will be popping up everywhere and kind of getting back to this in a new way maybe we won't be designing forests in such a way we don't even have forests that's why i love the idea of like this everything as far as uh the Carolinian forest in southwestern Ontario goes the idea of the civil uh, is great to me because yeah we're recreating like food forests essentially right so yeah
1: yeah
2: food yeah food forests um you know resilience I think is one con concept that hasn't sort of come in yet which is a big part of sort of building these more mm-hmm. diverse systems right.
0: um I think resilience is one of those words i've every show gets transcribed and they send me little like a uh, uh, pictures of the words that are most often said and resilience is definitely one of them and thank you for bringing that up because that's just it we we need more resilience in our food system for things of you know if if thing if something were to happen where the power grids go down and food just becomes you know a wasteland like i mean this year's made me kind of beef up on my pantry I guess is all I'm saying. If you open that door right there, you'll see canned goods will literally fall out and I'll hit you guys. So, <laughs> so do okay? <laughs> Order. Exactly. This room yeah. serves as many things. It's it's office, it's podcast, it's, uh, yeah, pantry. I
2: think cans are good sound dampening. <laughs> yeah, yes. right? great, great yeah. for the audio. Exactly. Um, yeah, so re- resilience, I mean, that brings in brings in so, so many parts because, I mean, we are, you know, the, the world is changing around us, right? It's both uh, there's instabilities with respect to climate. There's instabilities with respect to our institutions. And so um, actually, I like to think about when I sort of have this few filters in my head as planning in the um, for farming. And I actually have sort of a three-stage dystopian filter that I sort of hope that sort of my creations on the farm will bring Um And I guess in in sort of one way to capture that before I sort of go through the stages is to say that like a a big part of what I'm trying to do is sort of build an ecological template that doesn't that I don't necessarily know where the productivity is going to come from in the future or how people are going to need to access that land. And so, um,
0: well, you said that to me when we were processing the lamb is that if i were to die tomorrow what would these lamb do and that was just like a really interesting thing for you just to throw at me but i was i see where you're going now it's just like you're creating it for the future essentially for the like, yeah. like
2: so i want you know, like um my, my tier and that you know if a, the parent ends up focusing everything around their child in these times of life so my thought is sort of like what what can i prepare that if my daughter was going to sort of want to move on and you know be a farmer sort of uh extract the productivity for the land for like marketable and consumable goods. Sort of does it leave what what does what opportunities does it leave there? And are there like you know productivities that I might not even think about, right? Um I can be a lamb farmer. She could be a cucumber grower, uh, you know, we're building ponds and wetlands all over. She may be selling, you know, crawdads may be her biggest market. Maybe Mm -hmm. my biggest market in 20 years. I don't I don't know where it's going. So this template of like if we what can we offer uh, in the ecological template for somebody or multiple people to sort of have their incomes like in a commodity sense, but then also in subsistence sense. Um, and that kind of leads to the second one is like, what what does it offer for if you choose not to be a farmer? But it's like uh, so I want both, you know, subsistence food production, but then also these, you know, uh, escapes from, you know, Nature therapy, right? Mm-hmm. Like she may choose to be off yeah. and not be on the farm at all and be a globetrotter, but then have this home sense to come down and sort of like reconnect to this deep spiritual connection. But then also, sort of, what if none of the that goes on? Um, and and all those things could be, you know, in, in a in in, an, in a tragedy, right? It doesn't have to be my daughter. I just focus it around that for now. Mm-hmm. Right, but yeah. then also, yeah. I sort of want something that what if we get. If obliteration does come, and then there's, I have this like thought, sort of maybe I uh, used to watch too much Walking Dead, but of like, you know, like 50 years down the, the the road, like with the separation of time, what what are like sort of this you know clandestine group of humans gonna come across, right? And so, um, it's one thing you have your well yeah. there, but then the grid's down. But if we can tap springs and all of a sudden they come, you know, you wander up and there's this like bubbling spring that's just been doing its thing and feeding deer for. 50 years and there's these apple trees and they happen to have been inoculated with, uh, mushrooms. And so, you know, it's 50 years down the road, the trees are too tall to pick, but they haven't been pruned probably even, you know, secondary trees, but there's mushrooms and apples (laughs) and white tailed deer and turkeys are around, you know? So, um, yeah. So just those three tiers productivity plus giving, which I think, which brings back to sort of that, a concept that I think you were trying or you were starting to bring in there. Richard is like the idea of like the, can the definition of productivity include this like greater suite of good ecosystem goods and services, or at least that's mm-hmm. sort of my academia took me towards ecosystem goods and services. I was looking at you know, like mm-hmm. multifunctional landscapes and how can we have, how can we either expand the idea of productivity or put monetary values on the non-productivity goods and services of, of landscapes. And I think that's certainly important. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I, I, again, it depends on sort of which way the wind blows, how I feel about sort of monetizing all those, some of those things. It's a, you can really be a wrestle. Mm -hmm. You can simplify, uh, simplify too much and, you know, sort of be biased and skewed. And, um, you know, again, we're instantly putting it through this, like sort of human mental filter when the picture is so much, Mm -hmm. so much bigger, but um, which I think it lends to the, those things are always going to shift what we value shifts um, but if we can have this sort of clean ecological template that involves, um, multiple sort of levels of productivity, plus all these other goods and services, which might be as like mm-hmm. basic and necessary as clean water, but then also sort of, you know, I've, I've gained a huge amount of, of, of like sort of access to spirit, spirituality on the farm, both connecting just the land in general and more right. specifically with certain spots of water and soils on the land.
0: That's just it. I'm, I'm thinking of all the opportunities you have to just kind of interact with all the elements. And I've, I've spoken many times on the show about having, you know, the elements kind of speak to you on different ways and on different days, I guess. And uh, I know from my experience working the land, you're offered opportunities to just kind of uh, go with the flow and constantly see exactly how... Um, what is needed today? What is needed tomorrow? I've always been one again to plan. And to, the idea of just kind of thinking of going with the flow always sounded kind of woo to me and even still something that I have a hard time of letting go with. But even, even when it comes down to doing something like research, right, like sitting down, it's like today I have to do read all these papers or, or whatever. But some days I'm drawn to it. it's like, you know what, today's like a walk day or a, a podcast day or something, something else, right? And just kind of going with the flow. I mean, it's just like you, it's like, you've got things to do on the farm. But if, a, a rainy week you're you're stuck indoors you're not you're not uh you're not going out maybe as much or what have you right so it's I don't know. I, I appreciate the idea of um farming that allows far, the farmer and the farm and the animals and the plants and everything to to go with the flow rather than just constantly like grinding into the ground to get productivity in a such uh you know the way that we're used to I guess in in capitalism right it's just big machines and just kind of grazing over and uh well i mean i think this is a good time to even kind of talk about monoculture farms a bit because we were chatting or when discussing ideas for the show and again i'm kind of going back to all those things i've learned about you drake is, is your days of uh kind of uh well i guess debating vegans as, as you i think have specifically said yourself and it's a it's a topic within the full year of this show um it almost would we we haven't talked we haven't ta- I haven't touched on this yet. So I just want to get in there if you guys are game. But, uh, you know, the idea that soy and chickpeas and hummus and potatoes and all these things are going to uh, be the new wave of agriculture in the future. Meat is bad. Just past episode, we talked about it's not the cow, it's the how. Um, So obviously having, you know, healthy cow and eating – beef that is from grass-fed animals. There's a huge benefit there. So I think that what I'm trying to get at is like, what is, can we talk about how maybe this this narrative around uh, eating less meat uh, being good for us might not actually be the best idea and how maybe, uh, I guess, the vegan vegetarian diet, when you look at farming practices, could actually be quite detrimental to the health of the planet. Can, yeah. we, can we touch on that?
2: I mean, I do think, I think eating less meat is probably not a bad sort of ban- banner for f- a lot of folks to adopt. Um, that's I wicked mean, that you started with that.
0: It's coming from a guy who's you know is, is, is yeah, life, I, has I livestock, mean, and that's, that's eat, awesome. eat
2: less, better meat. I think is probably the way it should be.
0: And I don't. There you go. If we want to put that's a tagline on this episode, nice that's great. That you just hit too. it with yeah. that. Me too. Eat Thank less, you. better,
2: and I wouldn't say that's prescription to everyone because I know there's some folks that like want to go sort of all meat diet, and then so if you're not trying to. You know, if you're if you're living in that direction, then okay, eat more meat. But it's sort of the fact that we eat lots of meat and then combine it with all the simple carbs and all these other parts, and we don't eat very good meat. That's right. really where it comes from. And so, yeah, vegans—they're like just trying to bait me after. <laughs> Sorry, a beer. I to, no, no, I know. Well, no, no, it's did. great. It's great actually because they're they're one of those. Uh, it's one of those ideas because I, uh, I mean, I tend to be a contrarian anyhow. So if I sort of come across a uh, militant vegan narrative. I'm happy to push against it. But then at the same time, I actually feel like probably a lot of the motivations that drive people to veganism are the motivations that have driven me to farming.
0: Amen. Um,
2: in terms of sort of a pushback against, uh, industrial agriculture, I actually do think though that, um, like in general vegan, that, that sort of the vegan life way is, um, I would consider it to be like sort of ultra modern and like, you know, far removed from nature. And so I don't Mm -hmm. think that it's, it's not something, um, it's not sort of where I would go if i was that's, I, that's my meat? biggest
0: argument too is it the the unsustainabilityness from yeah just that whole lack of connection to nature and and just looking at like caloric value looking at this time of the year as we're going into winter and just the value of eating you know consuming again like healthy good quality meat i just yeah again i just see a, a lack that's my biggest argument with with the whole vegan narrative is there's this lack of like nature connection essentially it's well if like, we
1: go if we go monoculture mm-hmm soy and vegetables it's still monoculture it's still going to degrade the soil it's still going to do all those things it doesn't have to be that way but it's
0: right yeah
1: but i you know it's the same argument saying that as you're saying well don't eat meat because it's being produced in a crappy way right yes so can, can i f- spin this a little bit here because we're kind of you know we're going down that we're asking drake to kind of sort of be contrarian and stuff <laughs> which <laughs> is easier. fine yeah we are but how about how can we spin it to say okay well animals in the landscape back to the lamb and why it tastes so good animals in the landscape and how that contributes to ecological diversity benefits and how that's really quite critical to soil health, human health, earth health, just maybe going in that direction.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's the, where the the trip up becomes, I think is like Mm -hmm. in terms of vegan life way. And, and maybe that could be, could work if the landscape is serving sort of meat eaters and yeah the sort of vegetarians you know right um so it, sure. it doesn't mean that the land has to sort of it, people can people oh, yeah. can eat different products shoot, out yeah. of the land Choose. too um which right. is where i find that sometimes the sort of the veganism goes too far right because uh like i don't i wouldn't sort of push back against vegetarianism quite as much as vegans because i feel like the veganism um oftentimes sort of like uh, excludes the animal allies right and so as an ally, a, a yeah. huge amount of the of the work that's done on our farm with respect to regeneration is done by the animals. Right. Um, and so they serve, they serve that re- regenerative process we could talk. Well, s- I could, sort of- I'll
0: be a contrarian for just a second. Cause we, yeah. I would like to talk about that, but yeah, like, cause it, it, if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for the consumption of said animals, uh, I always wonder what would actually happen to them in this type of, a world where it's, you know, if it's not making someone money, then it doesn't exist. Right. So that's kind of my thing is like, I'm wondering like, to, if to not see, uh, again, that's my same, I guess, criticism of the vegan narrative is that we
2: don't, they, they don't see animals as allies, right? The animals aren't as allies. And I think, you know, and they serve that in lots of different ways. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. They, uh, I think, you know, a big part of it is right around the death of an animal, right? Like they don't want to think of that, animal dying. But I think there's two real hitches to that. And that is, you know, the first, if I sort of look at the sum tally of life on my farm, I, I would say that it's, it's, you know, it's, it's highly p- skewed towards the positive, right? Like I'm bringing life onto my farm all the time, mm-hmm. sort of every decision I'm making is like, how can I bring more life on mm-hmm. my farm? Some of those are livestock decisions, but then it's just like these complementary from birds, butterflies, uh, everything that can live on the farm. Um, so, so there's no doubt that like, if you're going to draw a box around a farm and then talk about sort of Mm -hmm. loss of life, I don't, you know, sort of my farm is not a loss of life farm. It's always, always sort of going in the positive direction. Um, I sort of forget where I was going to go with the second set of that. Well,
1: could we touch on just like, even just some of the practicality around not practicality, but we're seeing in patterns and people who've been doing regenerative agriculture say since mid nineties or early two thousands, whatever, how we're noticing, okay, again we have that image of the cows in the Amazon, but what about the cows or the bison on the prairies and how that's reintroduced biodiversity? How that um, you don't and you don't have to eat the animal, right? It just but how it's part of the landscape.
2: Yeah, and so I mean I think it's the you know those cows in the Amazon, they're it's it's an extractive thing, right? They're they're slashing the forest, burning it. Um, to release those nutrients into the soil, getting a quick flush and then they're grazing it off. Um, The start of that agriculture, like slashing the trees actually can be a productive thing. And there's been, you know, generations of of sort of slash and burn agriculture that I can, Mm -hmm. can consider like as a positive force in the Amazon. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of it becomes sort of, you know, plot size, right? Like when a, when a farm family sort of has a territory of 15 hectares and every year they cut a half hectare and it sort of comes into this sort of seven year cycle before they, leave it and let the forest grow up. It's not so bad. But then when the guy, you know, the big investor with seven combines comes in and they clear right. a thousand hectares and farm it square and soybeans. Well, it's very different, different things. So, uh, but the, so those animals can be a productive part. in even that slash and burn agriculture, if we're not beating it up too much. Um, and I think really what that comes down to is, um, yeah, the, the, the length of the disturbance. And so, Uh, If we think back back to the sort of uh, ecology as a template for a place, like, uh, a lot of these ecosystems can take and uh, actually thrive on uh, acute bouts of disturbance. But they Mm -hmm. don't um, thrive on long, constant uh, disturbance. Right. Uh, uh, Right. I think it's the same analogy of, um, you know, chronic stressors are really bad for your health. But these Mm acute stressors um, can actually... It's hormesis of the land. Thank you. Yeah. Hormesis of the land. We've
0: talked about hormesis on so many levels, you know, sauna, cold therapy on the show on an individual level. And then, yeah, to see it, a plant hormesis, but then here here we're not talking about the the actual uh, bioregion hormesis. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then the farmer's role is to sort of control that. And, um, you know, one thing, like I feel like I've actually failed in several respects in my farm is not having enough damage sort of fast enough, right? Like, uh. Richard and mm-hmm. I have talked sort of stocking density before and as we getting started and only having a few animals at times. And oh, yeah. um, I know I've had my I've given my animals too much space and they haven't done the disturbance and then they sort of go away. And so there's like things that um, me with, you know, even a, a peak of six cows and 30 sheep. There's things I can't quite do to the land the way that you get some of these big ranchers where they're putting, you know, a million mm-hmm. pounds per square hectare and like moving them 12 hours you're getting that sort of hoof action is just really pummeling those soils like when those herds leave that place and you walk through you are like oh my goodness it's gonna like right be destroyed well that but it's so punctuated right and that flushes back up
1: mm-hmm. it flushes back up and it's that disturbance piece and so going back to how animals come through the landscape increase soil health so you've got these big ranchers north dakota they're you know they're pushing a, a million pounds per acre of um like uh, herd size yeah yeah of live weight on those acres meanwhile the average is like 500 pounds conventionally speaking these are almost a million pounds while growing or building soil and moving these animals through the landscape in that way so building soil Mm -hmm. allowing grasses to sort of rotate and come up and then get eaten and you know all that sort of concept there and how productive it is on all those levels.
2: And grasses are highly resilient. So you can, and even then so are most of sort of the forbs in those, right? So you're the, the sort of the concept here is that if we're not eating them down too much and we're not beating them up too much they will bounce back. But the sort of the key part that really feeds into the regeneration then is um, just to describe this process that it's kind of tees into that idea of, you know as above, so below um, There's a, it's pretty much a one-to-one ratio or thought to be sort of above ground biomass, so like sort of growing part of the plant and then the below ground biomass um, being the roots. And so when that takes that above ground uh, surface disturbance that gets, either gets munched or stomped on um, or both, it actually sloughing off all those roots and driving that carbon into the system. Um, And then as the, it sloughs off, you know, we're not quite sure. And some studies have taken this different directions, but it, you know, we can think Theoretically, at least it's sloughing off an equal amount of roots. So if you eat half the Mm -hmm. plant sloughs off, half its roots as the top part regrows, the bottom part also regrows. And so you get these pulses of carbon into the system Hmm. Um, and also helps to sort of open up new niche space for new seedings um, and and plants to sort of spread either through root fragments or seeds um, above ground, too. So when I say I've done this wrong, sometimes part of my pastures were previously horse pastures and there's these really rank tough grasses that just grow in clumps and they tend to dominate once they sort of get dry and brown my animals don't tend to stick their faces in them so they hardly get eaten then um, and because sometimes my stock density is too low or i have the sheep which aren't quite uh heavy enough to sort of give that damage well then these clumps just sort of persist mm-hmm. i mean and now it's like you hit them with your tractor you're gonna sort of like It'll bounce you off, right? It's just it's a big, it's a big, powerful clump of grass, which could take some serious pressure. If I s- could stomp over that with a million pounds of hoof action, it would completely tear it up, it would completely uh, level that piece of ground out. Um, and then that plant, you know, the genetic base of that plant would grow back. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be likely to kill that grass in one day. And so it's these pulses, pulses of roots being sloughed. Um, and all the associated plant metabolites that get lost into the soil then. Um, so is this
1: kind of what we're talking about when we want to hear that terminology of around uh, regenerative agriculture and enhancing the carbon cycle? Basically, what does yeah. that mean and how is this part of that? What's happening?
2: Yeah. This is and part of
1: the what I would say is the future of farming right here. Is yeah, is and scary. it comes from carbon taxes. Because
0: everyone's worried carbon about carbon from, you know, big ag and, you know, industrial farming. So this is the piece where I think it's like, here's the antidote right here. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And so it comes from many ways. It comes from that raw sloughing of carbon that we've just been talking about. Um, and then like in the case of the lambs and the cows, the ruminant uh, animals. So these animals that that essentially we think of them as eating grass and plants, but what they really do is eat microbes. And then they farm the microbes in their guts and they feed those microbes, the plants. Um, so these animals come with huge diversity of, of, uh, of microbes. And some of them are so, so very similar to soil, um, because they have the same processes, right? Their, their job is to break down lignin, um, in these grasses. And then, so just by having these animals on the land, manuring, stomping that in, uh, we're not only adding new microbes that can sometimes just take out, like beca- adapt, you know, that same exact species, but um, without going too deep into it, we can think of microbes as they're dying and falling apart, there can be this horizontal gene transfer. And, uh, and so we're just adding all sorts of, of uh, genetic diversity to the soil, yeah. right? Yeah. And then, then those plants are, able, or then the microbes that are existing in the soil can take that up. And then not to mention that, so the microbes are being fed by those interactions with the animals, Um, and, and because of the animals, it's a whole host of, of, uh, microbes that are, that are working there, right? Like there's these ones that are breaking down the plants that have just, the roots that have just been sloughed off. There's ones that are, um, like methanophores. They're just, they're only sort of, they're having this like gulp of methane when the cows are belching and farting and pooing, you know, and then that's, they just sort of, there's a thing like, called a methanophore? The, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, methanophore. But, yeah, essentially, like this class of microbes, right, that are feeding on methane. So right. we're like, there's just so many more opportunities, niche right. opportunities for the microbes. So then our diversity comes up. And then, like, one thing my wife would definitely bring into this conversation if she was here right now is, like, um, as we sort of bring it back to carbon- is one of the most important carbon pools. Um, and I love this word too, is a uh, necromass. And so carbon that's tied up in the dead biomass of microbes. Um, yeah. And so to take a step back on that sort of that carbon pool, the one like uh, sometimes I think that carbon sequestration is a bit of a misnomer too. And it's, again, it's this idea. Mm-hmm. We put these words into the sort of lexicon and then we right. think of like uh, to sequestration just by the very sort of, spell casting of the word kind of gives you this linear thought where we're putting carbon into the ground. Um, whereas, um, I like to think of everything as always sort of cycling. And then we think about carbon pools and they have like, I think the terminology and sort of, uh, Sarah's field would be like sort of the slow pools and the fast pools. And so a lot of what, um, so let's contrast it with, um, conventional agriculture. We've got a little bit of carbon residue on the surface and then we add a nitrogen, um, fertilizer and nitrogen and carbon tend to be taken up by the community in a certain ratio 16 to one. And so, um, if you, the point being, if you dump a lot of nitrogen on it, you can just like gobble up that carbon really quick. And, um, and that sort of is in this, like these fast moving pools, the carbon's changing form quickly, but then can easily just be lost to the atmosphere, um, versus in some of these more diverse systems that we're trying to build. And in the natural systems, um, it's like they, we're pushing more carbon into these slower pools. Um, and that comes both from just having more microbial diversity leads to more necromass. Um, and it comes from uh, also root depth and how far, how far we're pushing biology and how far we're leaving carbon in the surface. And so we think of like a corn plant isn't going to really have too deep of roots. And as a matter of fact, in uh, like a tile drained um, agriculture, you know, you typically the roots aren't going to go any deeper than that anyhow because they've sort of reached the, like the the zone where the, the water's kind of managed. Um, that's an oversimplification, but uh, we've changed it such that both like through breeding and through monoculture and through changes in the landscape that we're not promoting root diversity, right. but it, sort of in our farm where we've got trees and um, and grasses and different kinds of grasses and, and forbs and wildflowers. We've got roots to every depth. And then, you know, one species, for instance, that we've got throughout our farm is going to be switchgrass. And they found that in dry areas, especially like on my a grassy knoll on my farm, that those switchgrass roots, could, they may be 10 feet deep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that sort of kind of violates that rule of thumb we started with, like as above, so below. But even then, if you think of that grass at its, it's pretty peak, tall. it's going to be a pretty yeah. tall grass. And so it's down there. And then if they really have to reach for water, um and then so when roots stuffing then suddenly we're leaving those roots much deeper. Um and so it's always just there again. So then you're you're kind of in the slower pools by virtue of being farther away from the like real hot spots of activity. Mm-hmm. And then all that is um yeah, just sort of slows that carbon that carbon down. It also the more activity is there there is there, I can think too like it's um uh, there's going to be sort of less chance for loss, right? Like as soon as somebody loses a carbon in the form of a sugar, like the neighbor's like, yoink, I'm going to take that, take it, take it back up. Right. Versus like not having a neighbor, um, which also comes. So we've got that, that, so that's kind of the maybe the chemical aspect of it, but it plays in the biology because as we're building these soils, um, through those same root actions and the root sloughing and the hoof action and a lack of tillage, which is, you know, we're creating productivity, Um, in an ag landscape without tillage uh, which to contrast that to a lot of the sort of vegetable productions that tillage is just um, like soil is a habitat the same as any other habitat and just how you sort of want your forest to have edge and openings and thick places to for a deer to hide out the winter well so do you want your like soil aggregates would be the term there Um, you want your aggregates to have lots of habitat um, which is just uh, it's both places that are going to pores that are going to fill with water and then um you know some deep pores are going to have water accessible like farther into a drought because they're just deeper in the soil there's more niche space um you know all these microbes they're throughout the soil but at the same time on their their level of life um they're very highly dependent on what they they need they're either going to die or just sort of go into stasis if it gets too dry or if it gets too hot or if it gets too wet um so if you're forming this diverse aggregate um which is happening through the root process. Another one I should 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 mention, and if we're talking about root root aggregates, is like as the bigger critters in the soil go move through earthworms, and they're secreting their mucus and um, and those sorts of you know uh, just other soil moles, gophers, whoever, beetles, dung beetles, whoever's moving through is they're they're helping to create these like bigger and more stable soil aggregates, and so we have these big aggregates that can house a lot of habitat. And so, um, think of that the same way, like I said, is with the deer. Like, is there more deer in your, um, sort of diverse woodlands or is there more deer on this bean field that's been completely obliterated? Well, that story's true right on the soil too. Is there more life in this like big clot of dirt that feels like cottage cheese when you pick it up and it just sort of crumbles apart, but still really holds its structure? Mm -hmm. Or is like, you know, you can go in some of these fields and pick it up and you like crunch this clod and it's dirt in your hand you blow it away and there's no pore space and so
1: so this whole porosity is a is a big deal with soil in in terms of how it retains rainwater too right and like keeps that rainwater in those little niches so roots can access it at a deeper level in a drought time or whatever but we're also not having this all run off into the streams and the flooding and the yeah. soil loss that goes rich with it that, reminds right? me
0: it reminds me of things that you've said before on the podcast in regards to like our our gut and just being poor like you know like just thinking of like a leaky gut and just our soil just kind of water running right through it with no no barrier at all whereas you're you know right. commenting on good healthy soil having this nice barrier to it and all this life and yeah. that's essentially what our gut lining is right and you know, i
2: think it really brings into i think a paradox that in my sort of more feisty days i used to love to sort of throw at the sort of conventional or or, yeah, conventional industrial farm advocates is we do have this idea that we, uh, that that farming is sort of, you know, all aimed towards maximum productivity and, you know, feed the world and those sorts of things. But then we tile drain all the land and we get rid of most of the water. And so, um, you, Mm -hmm. universally sort of the, the limiting factor for product for productivity is water. And so you can't really tell me that you, are maximizing productivity when you're getting rid of your water. Right. And so that's another tenant that really we push on our farm, which is water capture. Mm-hmm. And we've been working with a consultant, Zach Weiss of elemental ecosystems, uh, out of the Montana USA. And, um, just in terms of like basin retention of water. Uh, cause I do feel like, um, you know, if I want to serve those goals of, of in 40, 60 years, make sure it fulfills all my, you know, kin's, Kin's life needs or the life needs of the sort of, you know, zombie evading <laughs> troop that's coming yeah, through. That might be uh, you know, water is gonna be clean water is gonna be an important uh important part of that. You're doing it for rick uh, man. <laughs> Exactly.
1: Yeah.
2: Um so so that's yeah, so, so yeah water both in the soil, that's huge. I mean, our biggest reservoir. Mm. So I build ponds all over my farm. We got six ponds we've built in seven years and I think I have like 18 or 20 more. I'd love to.
0: You're shy of one build. a year. Build.
2: Yeah. Right.
0: That's pretty awesome
2: though. It's uh, you know, some of them aren't necessarily big and we haven't done the most, the, 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 biggest ones yet, but we've learned a lot. And you know, I actually definitely took our first year as an observation year. I told myself I wasn't going to use. Well, there you an go. Excavator. Of in
1: ter- <laughs> True permaculture right there. Um,
2: yeah.
1: but Flexibility. I, can I pop back real quick? So yeah. Make a couple of comments around yeah. the whole carbon enhancing the carbon cycle. Mm-hmm. If there's ever going to be a mm-hmm. carbon tax, then put that wow. towards regenerative ag, please. Because Well said The science is there The potential is there We just need some Infrastructure I just did I'm I'm opening a can of worms And we also We always give We always kind of Shit on the English language On this show About how limiting it is But then we have Words like necromatter, and methanophore. So I just want to give some props to the English language at the same time. That
2: might same be Latin. Tipped to well, the I head. know it's no, Latin, no. but it, well, <laughs>
1: whatever. It's English now.
2: No. You,
0: you got political there. I don't know. If you got political there with, you know, why let's put our carbon tax towards this regenerative idea. So it just it begs a question, and I hate to put, you know, Drew and or you know to put you in this contrarian position yet again but what are some of the barriers to this approach of farming like why isn't it catching on is, is it expensive to transition to said farm is it take a values thing uh why what just off the top of your head what do you think yeah are some For, of the barriers first
2: i want to speak right to the carbon before we get into that and that is you know, i think landscape change in general is one thing that's been sorely missing from our climate change models and so like I'm, you know, absolutely certain that the climate is changing and I've, you know, have I, I sort of understand the kind of the budgeting of sort of fossil fuel release. And I understand why mm. that's everybody's focus. But I actually think that's probably one of the harder things to change because we're kind of you're really nudging it at a lot of um, um, like basic human ideals right there. And you're taking mm. things like travel away or making it, you know, right. cost mm-hmm. prohibitive to rent your RV do to things go to are supposed to be Yeah. yeah right. All these yeah. things yeah. that we've, you know, built and and so much of our sort of media still tells us that like builds this narrative nice of to do. heavy consumption. Um, mm-hmm. but if we were to focus on agriculture and putting more carbon in the ground, um, like moving more carbon into these slow carbon pools through land management, we wouldn't really need to worry about any of those other things. Like we, when we look at sort of this, like this idea of like 350 carbon in the air or 400, 420, whatever we're up to now, um, that's defor, that's burning forests. That's plowing prairies. That is in my, uh, sort of understanding that is that has less to do with sort of, car uh, driving a car driving a car i mean right yeah absolutely there's things that are terrible with coal plants and i think you know we actually and a lot of the things that we want to fight through carbon they feel really good to fight because we need to be fighting against them but we should probably be fighting against like particulate matter pollution to like against carbon of coal burning specifically like you know land land destruction through mining and then particulate matter in our for us to breathe into our lungs, I think is like the bigger hitch with coal burning than it is with carbon. Cause if we had, if we were overall you know,
0: carbon across the whole world where you're looking at, yeah, some place where we might have a lot of particulate let's focus again, just like this yeah. regenerative farming, let's focus our like efforts on like reducing particulate. all right. of those 78%
2: of severely degraded arable lands could sink so yeah. much carbon. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, like my farm, it, it was beat up for 150 years with, uh, conventional ag from tobacco to cucumbers, uh-huh. corn and beans, everything. And it will be like a lifetime. Like my carbon sinking on my place is easy because it's like from, you know, it's from zero to p- percent to 3% right. is easy. Then it like yeah. if, to sort of like find your four, 3% and push it oh. to four is harder and then four to five. And, um, you know, each step of the way it gets harder because the system is, is more willing to sort of shed, shed that carbon. It's not, it's the same thing. It's not as easily, bound up there's everybody's sort of satiated so nobody's grabbing for it but those those first couple percent even the first i forget what it is like if we if everybody just decided to put in two percent two percent in a lifetime like it would probably solve it like seriously i forget the math right now but raising it raising all the soil organic matter by five percent across the globe is like
1: you would just uh, suck all that carbon. It's amazing that yeah, this is yeah. not in the narrative anywhere. Yeah, no Well,
2: right. and then we it's really, so easy to get, it's just, yeah, it's, why are we so afraid well, of carbon? it's two, rate? it's two things, or I think, uh, and we will go back to your question, um, sort of the bar- exact barriers. It's, it's, um, it's the, it's the simplification. So in the, uh, the, the other part of that sort of the, uh, we can sink a lot of carbon in the ground, but then we, to bring it back to your idea of rain, like we're not holding and keeping this water here, um, which has all sorts of effects to cool, cool an area. Um, I mean there's continental scale, like climate pattern issues with respect to deforestation and, uh, like sort of indigenous Amazon, or maybe it was even, um, Aboriginal Australians, you know, talk about the forest calling the rain and, uh, These forests, you know, in their description would be sort of like spiritually connected to the cycles of water and would call it in. Um, You know, the biologists might explain or the scientists might explain that like the the forest is sort of off gassing all these volatile organic compounds, which um, when condensation forms around them in the atmosphere is more likely to fall as rain than if we have particulate matter from that same coal plant. Uh, Those organic compounds from the coal plant have a different structure such that they're more likely to suspend the water in the air is kind of mist and clouds and never it keeps it so small. It never falls out. Right. Um, and so even if that wasn't the aboriginals that said that certainly that's the case with Australia, like we have dried that continent out because of interior deforestation and then the rains are not being called in by what, you know, name the name the process depending on where your belief system lies, but the rains aren't coming from the ocean because we're not being calling them in. And then so, um, and in general, like a a hat tip to water is like water has been. I think the reason land has been left out of the climate model so much is water has been left out of the climate model so much, um, and that's because water is just freaking complicated, right? It exists in three different phases, and it can drive things back and forth. Those like phase changes, like the 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 like latent energy of fusion and fission as it's like, you know, ice melting and like the, the sort of inertia that's, that's involved in those phase changes is really hard to model. Whereas carbon is like boop, linear. So it's like super easy, which means,
1: yeah. How do we reductionist model again, but do we need, like how do we piggyback that? And I think soil is a good way to piggyback that to say, okay, if soil can put carbon in the ground, let's do that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so how can we – so then I think that, that takes us then to the idea of sort of what are the boundaries or the barriers. Um, you know, I think I have to preface sort of my answer to all that is to say that we, we got help to get our farm. Um, sort of this was – we knew our passions were going this way, but we had some farm – or we had some family help that um, for sort of from both sides of our family that all came together and allows us to live on our farm um, without like a huge mortgage debt that pushes down on us. Um, and I've seen in my own farm history, when I've tried to take these systems and immediately monetize them, I've made decisions that I've later mm. kicked myself for one that just comes to mind. It seems simple. Some of our first pigs, we had customers that wanted meat. It's like, all right, we're farmers. We got to feed people. And, uh, we made some decisions and ended up sort of processing some of, uh, you know, what should have probably been kept for breeding stock and some breeding stock and, and, uh, and then we're like, ah, oh, damn it. I really like that pig and I should have kept her, you know, but my men, my, I was, right. I went into that sort of quick, quick turnaround, yeah. profit driven. And, and then I didn't need it to feed my family in that case. Um, I'm not, we're, we we bootstrap the farm enterprise. We're not, we don't have this like a funding stream behind it. So we're not, um, we need to make the farming work, but I'm also like, you know, the $500 or $400 I made off that pork, you know, didn't mean it didn't that that should have been the driving factor. But I was like, you know, you pulled in some ego and pride into that. And like people want our stuff and they mm-hmm. love it and we're going to satisfy them and just keep it coming. Right. And so you start to make these cause you like I just get another pig next year. Um, so you really quickly in that production mindset can move towards short term decision making. Right. Um, but we've been released from some of that short term decision making. And then also, um, mm. I mean, I bring it right back to, you kind of brought up the idea of personal work. I've really pushed myself like my upbringing. Um, and I, and I think, you know, was there a lot of very positive aspects came out of it, but like sort of my dad was the kind of guy that was always working, always doing stuff, um, work six days a week before we had our hardware store, work six days a week. And then when we had our home business then we were, you know, nine days a week yeah, and, right. uh, um, everything was sort of that, um productivity oriented in many ways um, production is worth, you know, sort of this, this kind of mantra that's uh, I feel sort of dogs are our culture. Um, and so same thing, right? We, we fall into this productivity is worth. And then how do you sort of right. uh, what's the, what's the increment of productivity? That's your, your dollar bill. And, and so um, when you go down that it's hard. And so I've been released from some of those pressures. And so I'm more free to make mistakes I'm more free to do things. More free to
0: learn in the process. Yeah, right? to yeah. learn,
2: to do, right. to, okay. um, to, to start the, some to things. To make the
0: best farm, the future of farming, essentially, to be able to experiment and jump into these ideas and, and to experiment and truly learn, take what you've learned and all the, the, the left brain intuitive you know, stuff, but to actually apply it to there. I think it's a, I think it's a great thing because, yeah, without that room to, for experimentation, we can't know how to get better. So, yeah.
2: And it really does help you to get out of the way right you back, know you yeah, don't, you're not making those heavy-handed decisions always right you have that uh, opportunity and this is something i've learned over time to go with the flow because mm-hmm. when you're in your way you're not going with the flow mm-hmm. um and then that you know in turn sort of helps you to engage these animal allies and to see what what you need to be how you can differently sort of help this juggling process you know i sort of picture what i do is just like i've got like lots of balls bouncing in the air and i don't really know how to juggle, but I sort of like hit the, maybe they're balloons. They fall (laughs) a little slower, You like let them bounce every once in a while, but then just sort of get it back into the mix. But it's really not Mm -hmm. all about me. Right. And so, um, Mm got to, you know, uh, sort of breaking out of that, that, that immediate productivity mindset is part of that. Um, I don't know. There's a gentleman I follow quite a lot, philosopher, Stephen Jenkinson, and he talks in one of his books. He sort of like this, again, this like kind of, he p- puts it as like the 80s mindset, but it really is this idea of like productivity is worth. And um, he talks about sort of everybody still chasing profit. And I really do think, and maybe COVID's bringing this s- around a little bit. And it's sort of, he says something of like, you know, the, the days of profit are over, right? Like we've extracted, like we've taken all the blood out of this turnip we can, right? Like the days of profit are over and now it's time for work. And, uh, and I really do feel like, you know, if we never get rich on our farm, but we feed our community with, uh you know if we can make our food accessible to them um and heal the land then that's really really sort of the work making huge change and it's making tasty lamb too it is and i really it's a privileged (laughs) position right like i'm not there are many people that can't find themselves on 50 acres and be able to make a thousand dollar mistake or a ten thousand dollar mistake you know that's um but
0: you're leaving a light on for those, who, inspiring those, and I think this this whole podcast has been great because yeah, we've been able to touch on not only that personal personal development piece, but you know how that ties into with working with the land, right? And I think it comes they come hand in hand when when you're doing the way you guys are doing it. So I commend you for that, and I think it's it's nice that we kind of brought it back to that productivity piece. And that and I think I worked you pretty hard today with all this stuff. So I think we got to get Sarah back in. We'll talk more soil, uh, all things soil and gut health, and and, and, and just tons of you know all those links there but i uh, i guess i'll I'll work you a little bit harder and ask you the final question that i ask everybody and uh what is your wildest dream for the earth Drake please tell us
2: <laughs> yeah just you know um reconnection we are one thing i didn't bring in our sort of our farm is uh when we came to naming it we we have these three prominent ridges on our farm and you can see them in the the digital elevation map. And so we called it three ridges for that. And then we got this idea of the, that we brought it down to three R and then we use that, we use those three R's to talk about, uh, resilience, uh, reconnection and regeneration. And so, you know, I think, um, reconnection is really for, for humans to get reconnected with the earth. Um, I've certainly touched on a few things in my seven years on the farm when I've had the luxury of, you know, being immersed in blood and mud and, and, um, and time to to sort of connect to myself. Like I've I've touched a few things energetically and spiritually that are like proof of concept to me that have blown my sort of old conservative rural Iowa self completely apart with respect to sort of some of the potentials um, mm-hmm. that we can have when we have animals and Earth as an ally. Um, and so then yeah, I just hope you know that would be my hope is that more people can find that. And I sort of we try to bring that in with our food. We're trying to get this food um, into people's bodies. I mean, it's highly nutrient dense. Um, and so it's going to help them with healing, but then also, you know, I know there's so many conversations are started by people eating our food or talking about our food or our food served in, uh, you know, some really nice restaurants where they tell our story well. And so like to hope to like push that connection, like I don't really have, I'll just stop raising chickens if I'm going to have like undifferentiated chicken nuggets, even if they're like the most gourmet, right? Like I, I do this, um, because it's, it supports our regeneration efforts, uh, monetarily, but then also it helps to get that, um, to get that message out. So like the more we can reconnect people to land, we host a small kids gathering on our farm, uh, you know, and maybe that, that two hours every Monday might be the most important thing I do. I'm not totally sure, but, um, I know these kids need access to nature. Um, and I know from listening to your podcast, like that's a big, know Nature access right. and sort of all the things that can bring from the ecosystem services to these deep spiritual things to just you know quietness right uh always a nation healing like there's just so many things that can happen when people can right. be connected to earth and I think like I would say too to bring that around like you know it might have been you know other times of my life I've been like world peace or these right. like sort of more concrete ways, but I really do feel now like we're in such a bind with respect to um where we are behind the eight ball with soil loss. We see sort of this media mania going on the last few months where I think people sort of were really at the edge of, you know, free will is sort of gone. And so then what can, I feel like, you know, there's needs to be some sort of like trip and collective consciousness. And I know that like, I have the sense that that's like, you know, reconnection. So how can we reconnect people Mm -hmm. sort of facilitate? We need to, we need to rekindle that ally relationship. Like we can't do we can't do what needs to be done alone, without a doubt. I
0: like one uh, lamb
1: at a time,
2: though. <laughs> One lamb at a time. Yeah, oh. indeed. One.
0: I, I like the three. I like your uh, your the new spin on three on three R the three Rs, right? So, um, Rich, do you have any uh, concluding remarks here for our guests today?
1: No, I think I just said it one lamb at a time. One lamb
0: at a time. you did yeah. right. Yeah, no, I like the thread th- of the lamb throughout it. Um, Drake, tell folks where they might be able to to get said lamb and uh, how they can uh, stay up with all the cool things you guys are doing. And yeah.
2: Yeah. So our website is a uh, three ridges.farm. Check us out. If you're local, there's an opportunity for meat. You know, chickens are really our sort of big, biggest enterprise. where We're able mm-hmm. to sort of serve the most people. We're just coming into the lamb. And then this year was uh, real weird with, um, sort of the pandemic and access to abattoirs. And so we weren't able to share our lamb as right. widely, um, as we'd like to, and we're sort of just scaling those things up. But if you're close, uh, we'd love to have uh, right. some of that, some of that are, f- you know, have you experience our food. And then also on our website, like my wife does a great blog. She both shares recipes and, and, um, mm-hmm. and t- but talks about some of the science behind some of these things too. And so, um, and also on the blog that any other sort of outreach that we've done is there. And so, uh, yeah, both sort of a edible piece and an education piece to it, I suppose. Right. Well, thank you for that.
0: And uh, yeah, definitely would love to have Sarah on and we'll uh, discuss more things as we yeah continue on with the podcast but this was a great way to i think to kind of enter in the whole aspect of regenerative farming and uh yeah just thank you so much for uh everything you guys do and in the, the beautiful soil that you guys are growing out there so um yeah thanks very much for being here and thanks to everybody for listening out there please leave a rating and review if you enjoyed this episode and as always share it with a friend and stay wild Thank you for listening to the Rewild My Bio podcast. Please subscribe to the show and leave a five-star rating if you have enjoyed this episode. I have so much gratitude for all of you who continue to share this show with your friends. It really does mean so much to me. If you want more content from Rewild My Bio, then please check out rewildmybio.com to find previous episodes and sign up for the newsletter. In the newsletter, I share blogs I've written and reflections from my current health promotion research. Please follow along on Instagram and Telegram with the handle at rewildmybio and on Twitter at Sean Slade. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, stay wild.